Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, we're asking, is Elon Musk making a big mistake spending $61 billion on Twitter? He says it's about bolstering free speech in the digital town square of our functioning democracies, but could he just lose money, lose Twitter users, make the world more divisive and distract himself from Tesla? There's one thing I've learned over my tech reporting journey over the past decade or so, it's that you bet against Elon at your own peril. We'll unpack the fascinating decision by the world's richest man right after today's headlines with Jan Fran. It's Thursday, April 28. Hello. Well, we have been talking about it for a while and it looks like the RBA could lift interest rates as soon as next week. This is, of course, happening right in the middle of an election campaign, Tom. Yeah, so this speculation comes after yesterday's data revealed inflation had surged to 5.1% for the year, the highest it's been since 2001. That comes from a quarterly rise of 2.1%, so 2.1% over three months. Um, and this has been huge. largely driven by... Yeah, it is really huge. Um, largely driven by petrol prices that have gone up 35% during that time. Yeah, so when inflation goes up, the Reserve Bank generally raises rates, uh, which is what financial markets are expecting them to do next week. The last time that this happened during an election campaign was on a very auspicious occasion, Melbourne Cup Day in 2007, which is two weeks before John Howard lost the election to Kevin Rudd. Yeah, so it's probably got Scott Morrison a little bit nervous. He's trying to calm the fears by pointing out that our inflation is lower than everyone else's. You can see in the United States up over 8%. Economies in Germany, the United Kingdom, and indeed in New Zealand and Canada up around the 7% mark. But there's Australia performing better than all of them when it comes to cost of living pressures. Labor is also seizing on this opportunity, saying that there's a triple whammy here of rising prices, increasing interest rates, low wage growth. So here's Jim Chalmers. Everything is going up except people's pay, and they're about to be hit with rising interest rates on top of all of that. Yeah, so it's an interesting moment in the election campaign. The coalition are also sort of putting out the message that these are uncertain times and you're best to trust us to manage the economy. But Labor are really trying to make the case, well, you've been in in power for 10 years and we're in this situation, so you're to blame. Mm. Even though a huge part of this is oil prices, which the coalition um, did deal with in a short-term way with that cut to the excise in the budget. Yeah, this is the thing. It's sort of out of both Labor and the coalition's hand. As you say, there's been rising fuel prices that are, you know, partly due to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, which neither of our political parties has any control over. And in terms of dealing with inflation, I mean, that's really up to the RBA. So I think both Mm. parties are sort of just trying to sling mud at each other with neither of them actually able to do very much, except possibly raise wages. Could China be trying to influence the federal election? Well, the Home Affairs Minister certainly thinks so. She has suggested that China timed its security agreement with the Solomon Islands to coincide with the Australian election. Why now? Why right in the middle of a federal election campaign? I mean, we talk about political interference and that has many forms. Yeah, not very clear on the details there. That was Karen Andrews on 4BC. So the deal that was signed last week, and we've talked about it quite a bit on the show, it could see China establish a military presence on the archipelago in the Solomon Islands, which is just 2,000 kilometres off the coast of Australia. So upon hearing this, Labor has hit back. 
I thought what Karen Andrews said was remarkably desperate uh, and remarkably unhinged. Yeah, that's the shadow treasurer Jim Chalmers there again. Labor say Karen Andrews has provided no evidence for the claim that China timed um, this Solomon's deal for our election. It does seem potentially plausible, but a little bit far-fetched and a little bit... um, self-important, potentially. Well, on matters like this, on matters of national security or foreign interference, um, you know, either party is expected to inform the other if they do hear anything related to those two issues, particularly during an election campaign. Christina Keneally has come out and said that Karen Andrews hasn't told Labor anything. So either provide the details of where you got this information from or clarify your comments, because it's a pretty big call to Mm. say that, you know, there's Chinese interference in the federal election without really providing solid backup. And the EU has slammed Russia's decision to cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, calling it blackmail. It comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. Yeah, that was EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking there. So Poland and Bulgaria have been two of the most outspoken countries that have supported Ukraine. And it's probably come as no surprise. I mean, we were just talking about the Russia-Ukraine conflict affecting gas prices. They've really surged in Europe as a result of the news. Yeah, so that means more economic pressure on those countries supporting um, Ukraine. Um, Analysts say the move is trying to punish and divide Western countries for that support. Um, At the same time, though, it will deprive Russia of the income it needs to fund its war effort. I guess, Jan, it's just good for those um, European countries that this is happening in their summer and not their winter. Yeah, well, it just shows you how interconnected the globe is when it comes to resources, particularly oil and gas. You have a country like Russia that's, I think, the second largest provider in the world. When they invade Ukraine, it puts everybody in this situation where they want to stand up against Russia, but they're so economically tied in many ways that you have to tread this very fine line because Russia could do exactly as it's done now to Poland and Bulgaria. 420 public school teachers across Victoria have been stood down now for failing to meet COVID vaccination requirements. Yeah, so more than half of of that figure, so about 57%, they can't work because they haven't received a third dose of the vaccine. Um, They've been placed on leave without pay, which means that they're unable to work. And this has been since the 25th of March when that third dose deadline came into effect. But there's a few more teachers on top of that, Tom, who were stood down last year. Yeah, so there was 180 of those for not getting the first or second dose and now we're, because of the, the people that haven't got the third dose, we're up at a total of 420. Now, it's only Victoria and Northern Territory that have the third dose requirement to be able to go and do your job as a teacher. So it's a very strong stance. In New South Wales, unvaccinated teachers, like no vaccines, will be able to start working again from mid-May. So... It seems like a step too far to stop people from working for not getting a third dose. And you'd have to think at some point fairly soon, and Dan Andrews has hinted that this pandemic legislation could end in the middle of the year, which means this kind of vaccine mandate would be scrapped. But it seems a bit over the top at this point of the pandemic. And a former Special Armed Services member and friend of Ben Robert Smith has been accused of obstructing and pushing war crimes investigators. So the man had just given evidence in the Robert Smith defamation trial and he was in his hotel room 
when the Australian Federal Police arrived with a warrant to seize his phone. Yeah, and then it's alleged that he resisted those orders and pushed one of the officers uh, and then he was taken into custody. Yeah, so he's a former SAS soldier. He's now facing two charges, including causing harm to a Commonwealth official. Um, He was released on a $10,000 bond. He's expected to face court, though, in June. All right, thanks for that, Jan. We'll catch you tomorrow on The Briefing. Um, In just a moment, Antoinette Latouf will join me to talk about Elon Musk's move on Twitter. Antoinette Latouf, I think before we get into the wisdom of Elon Musk's decision on Twitter, it's worth discussing how much this really matters to everyday people like our listeners here at The Briefing because it's mostly a platform that us journos or politicians or celebrities get lost in, but not so much the rest of society. Yeah, well, if I can use my family of nine as a representative sample, I'm the only one who's on Twitter, but I'm also the only one that is in one of those professions, like the rest are beauticians and electricians and stay-at-home mums, and they couldn't give a toss about Twitter. Mm. And it also has about one-tenth the number of users compared to Facebook. Uh, and that means uh, in Australia in particular, only about one in five use it. It's the eighth most, most popular social media platform. Way down the list. Totally way down the list. But I think it's easy for celebs and politicians and journos to get kind of really obsessed with it and conflate its importance and its reach. However, while the numbers are low, the people on there are very influential. So it can often make the news, so-and-so tweeted this, or it gets screen grabbed and shared quite widely on WhatsApp group, whether it's true or not, or whether it's since been corrected. It's also an an opportunity for politicians uh, or celebs to like circumvent the media. They don't want to do an interview or face scrutiny. So they'll just put out what they say and it can go unchallenged. Yeah. And it can also create trends and hashtags like Me Too or Black Lives Matter. So in that sense, it can be very influential as well. I guess the other thing worth knowing about it is that it can be so intense and divisive because it brings people into the same town square, as Elon puts it, from very different backgrounds. Yeah, people are often their worst self on on them and and people love the retweets and it almost seems the angrier and the meaner you are, the more likely you are to get retweeted. Exactly. And so to try and deal with these kinds of problems, um, you know, the divisiveness, but also misinformation, they've blocked a lot of people, most famously, Donald Trump for his role in um, the Capitol Hill riots and denying the election result. On the other side of politics, there was an interesting example of a feminist, Virginia Woolf, who got kicked off for spreading vaccine misinformation. So Elon Musk has said he's coming to the rescue. He wants to come and allow greater freedom of Mm. speech. And there's a whole lot of people going, hooray, now our speech can be freer. We support this. So will he make it better? And will he lose money along the way? Uh, given that he has forked out quite a a large sum of money. Lots of questions and not a lot of answers just yet, but we're going to put those to David Swan, who is the tech editor at The Australian. David, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. So clearly this is a business decision and a personal, cultural, ideological decision for Elon Musk. Do you think he can achieve both? Yeah, I do. And there's one thing I've learned over sort of my tech reporting journey over the past decade or so. It's that you bet against Elon at your own peril. He is a visionary. I would bet on him to accomplish his goals here. It's a big play that he's making financially and he's leveraging money from the banks as well that he'll have to repay and then some money from Tesla and some of his own personal fortune as well. So um, I think that's good. I think it's good that he'll have all this skin in the game, which means that he's really tied to the success or failure of Twitter from here. So lots of um, right-wing figures are cheering Elon 
on here and there's a sense that more right-wing people have been banned than left-wing. How do you think Twitter will change if more of these people like Trump are unbanned? Like it's already a pretty toxic place. Is it just going to be more toxic? Elon's going to have to grapple with that. I think that if I had to make a prediction, a lot of these uh, right-wing sort of conservative free speech advocates will come back to Twitter from these right-wing niche sites that they'd migrated to. So you have the likes of Truth Social, Trump's platform, Getter is another one, Rumble, where the far right sort of went over there and ditched Twitter. And I think a lot of them will come back. And then the key for Elon and for the new management will be how do you keep Twitter a place that you know people do feel safe to be able to have a conversation. That's a very open question at this point. I know a lot of people do get harassed on, on Twitter and, and it can be a very toxic place. So that might look like more leaving Twitter as sort of an open playing field and having more communities in there where, where you're in a group, for example, and you're sharing amongst your group and you can feel safe amongst that group. Twitter has been very toxic for a long time. So making it less so is going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. Do you think there's that many people who are on the right who, who have either been banned or don't want to be on Twitter in its current form that would actually come back to it? Would that be a meaningful increase in its user base, meaningful enough to outweigh the people that might want to get off it if it gets more hectic? No, I think it's more of a perception than a reality. I think the bigger issue is just making Twitter a place where the average everyday person feels like they need to be on there mm. to feel like they're up to date with what's going on. It's less about convincing conservatives to, to jump on or come back and more about convincing sort of the bloke at the pub that you know he doesn't want to miss out on what's happening on Twitter. Do you think it's true that more right-wing people are being banned on Twitter than people from a more left-leaning perspective? No, I don't. I just think that right-wing people probably complain about it more yeah. and are louder about it. Yeah, I agree. They, they harp on <laughs> about this apparent freedom that's been robbed of them. Free speech doesn't mean freedom from accountability or consequence. Mm. And that, you know, those who are usually the victims and the most marginalised are women, people with disability, people of colour. And so on the one hand, you've got these right-wing figures going, hooray, great for us, and then a whole bunch of other communities worried about what it means for them. I think we've seen a big sort of existential power struggle over the past decade or so when people who are used to having the power are now grappling with a social media that lets everybody have a voice. And then when you have everybody now part of the conversation and on sort of a level playing field, that makes some people uncomfortable. Mm. And you see them then therefore lash out and say that they're being censored which is, um, you know, nothing of the sort. It's just more people are being added to the conversation. People that didn't previously have a voice now have access to one, which I think is a very powerful thing, but it's, it's still one that we're sort of working through collectively as a society and making sure that people that want to have their voices heard can be heard is, is something that, you know, will be forefront of Elon's mind and Twitter going forward is sort of making sure it's a, still a, a welcoming and safe place for making sure everyone can, can be heard at the same time and, you know, Good luck to him. I think he's got a big challenge. Oh, yeah. That sounds impossible, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that was David Swan. Interesting point he made there about trying to get to a broader range of the population. I just don't know how they're going to do that. And I don't think the stuff that Musk has talked about so far, like an edit button or clearing out the bots, is necessarily going to make a seismic shift there. Yeah, we're going to have to definitely wait and see. And so obviously why David seems like a big fan of Elon, our next guest, he's a lot more critical and thinks Elon Musk has little understanding of social media. Professor Axel Bronze, he works at the Queensland University of Technology. He's a journalism and social media researcher. Axel, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Do you think this is a good or a bad decision by Elon Musk? 
Well, look, time will tell, really. Uh, at the moment, we don't really quite know yet uh, how Elon Musk is planning to run Twitter. Of course, in his other businesses, he's been very successful in the past. He's also been quite erratic in more recent times. He may well try and push Twitter in directions that take his fancy at the moment, rather than having any sort of long-term strategy for the platform. And uh, already, of course, he's talked about maximum free speech on the platform. That has a lot of people very worried because, of course, there need to be limits to free speech uh, when it comes to hate speech, to abuse, to the persecution of minorities and so on. So there are some genuine concerns about how much Musk actually understands about running a platform like that and running it in such a way that it remains attractive to users. And you tweeted yesterday um, in response to some of Musk's, I guess we'll call it his his shopping list of what he wants to do, um, that he's going to get rid of the bots and he'll add human authentication and, you know, he'll free up speech. And you pointed out that saying those things signals that he doesn't Mm. really know or understand how social media works. Can you explain why you made that criticism? The question of human authentication, for instance, is incredibly problematic because what does it mean to authenticate all human users on on a platform like Twitter? It means that all of us who use Twitter would have to submit some form of identification to the platform itself, which means that now Twitter has a database of the personal IDs of all of its users. That is not something that a lot of people are comfortable with, particularly people who have you know, a lot to fear from data leaks, from having their identity revealed when they don't want it to, to be revealed and so on. The other part about the bots as well is also problematic because not all bots are, of course, problematic bots. There are many bots that fill a very useful function from just reporting the weather to pointing out misinformation to all sorts of other uses that people have put bots to now. So getting rid of all the bots doesn't actually make Twitter a better platform. Getting rid of spam, getting rid of hate speech and abuse, which largely comes from human users, that is a much better goal. But of course, that also is quite difficult. So do you think making Twitter a freer place, more voices, um, potentially despite negative impacts, will bring a net gain in users to Twitter? Or do you think it might scare off more people than it brings in? Yeah, it might be a balance. It may well bring more users more accounts to Twitter, but whether it improves the quality of conversation on the platform uh, is a very different question. We might just see a lot more hate speech, a lot more abuse, a lot more rage and argument and people fighting with each other on the platform. And yes, in the longer term, that's likely to drive away people who are not there to talk about whether the election in 2020 was stolen or not, as as many people uh, still seem to want to do. But it drives away the people that use Twitter for very different purposes, for professional purposes, for personal purposes, and so And do you support suspension for bad behaviour or hate speech rather than outright bans? How do you think that can be managed? Twitter's done this in the past by, yes, suspending essentially on first offence, but it really depends on the case itself. If someone spouts outright hatred and supports hateful ideologies, for instance, then uh, you can move much more quickly to a ban, to a removal of that account possibly, uh, compared to someone who simply in the heat of the moment, you know, said something that they actually genuinely regret afterwards. So Axel, at the start of this whole um, briefing topic, Antoinette and I were discussing how Twitter really exists within a small section of society, politicians, academics, journalists, celebrities, and often doesn't impact everyday people that much, certainly in terms of use, even though often what happens on Twitter is reported in the mainstream media. Do you think there's a lot at stake here for society? Do you think if Twitter goes in the wrong direction, it can really have a destabilizing or negative impact on society? Or do you think it sort of sits in its own little bubble? 
You're right. Look, Twitter is in some ways an elitist medium. There are a number of professional groups who are particularly active on the platform, journalists, politicians you mentioned, academics and others. It's not widespread throughout all society, but there are a number of these groups that are particularly active. They will certainly feel its decline and absence if it comes to that very uh, significantly. But it has really important follow-on effects as well, because some of these debates that happen on Twitter do carry out into the wider public, the general public. We're seeing it in many ways set trends and set agendas. And also, of course, Twitter is incredibly important, particularly in breaking news events, in crises. Uh, here in Australia, we've seen its use in bushfires and floods and so on as well, as well as in political crises. So it plays a particular role in the broader context of all the different social media platforms we've got available. And if that disappears, I think that will be felt quite significantly. Something else may well come along and pick up that slack. But in the short term, it is a medium that is important for what it does, that has a number of particular roles that it fills. And just one final quick question. Would you bring Trump back? No, no. I mean, once you start calling for an armed insurrection against a legally elected government, I don't think you, you have a right to spout that kind of nonsense on a public platform. So, no, I think that's a, that's a clear no from me. Do you think Elon will bring him back? That's quite a, a significant possibility if he follows through with this whole idea of you know, free speech for free speech's sake. Whether the authorities in the US will necessarily let him is another question. And also whether Trump actually wants to come back, seeing as he's launched his own, if highly dysfunctional, platform Truth Social in the meantime. So he may not want to come back to Twitter in order not to be seen as having presided over a failed social media alternative to Twitter. That was Professor Axel Brons from QUT. So after all of that, Antoinette, where's your head at on this topic? I'm yet to see or understand how Elon Musk can save Twitter or broaden its reach. But having said that, he's a man who's done the unthinkable in the past. I agree with that completely. At the moment, I can't see how he broadens the audience. I think he could only make it more divisive and shrink the audience. But I do think he's a genius and I'm definitely not. And tomorrow on The Briefing, the COVID chaos, massive lockdowns of millions of people in China. Listener.